But you can turn in your Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if you'll stand in honor of God's word, I'll begin reading in verse 6, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse verse, uh, 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Verse 8, for now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. Father, we ask that you would bless this word to our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. If we went around the room and asked you to name the five most wealthiest people in the world, you could probably take a guess, but I doubt you would just know it off the top of your head. Or if I asked you to win, name the winners, the last five winners of the Miss America competition. Give me their names. You probably couldn't do it. I know I couldn't do it. Or if I said name ten people who have won the Nobel or the Pulitzer Prize. You'd probably get a couple off, but I doubt you could name ten But if I asked you this simple question, could you name three friends who have helped you through a difficult time? Or if I asked, name five people who have taught you something worthwhile in this life. Most of you could probably come up with at least one name. Well, someone said, The people you'll never forget are not the ones with the most credentials, the most money, or the most awards. The people who make a difference in your life are the ones who care, and they will live forever. See, every believer, every Christian wants God, I would believe, to use his life for his glory so that it impacts people for all eternity. And especially applies, I think, to our children, but also to extended family and friends. Um, To impact people for eternity, we have to truly care about their souls. You have to truly care about them in a way that they feel it. Um, Our caring is the key that opens up the door for the gospel. 
We've probably all seen that in our lives. When you care for someone and you, the Lord just opens up a door and you're able to share the glorious gospel with them or, or the truths necessary for them to grow in their faith. Uh, caring alone isn't enough without the truth of the gospel. People can care all day long. You can feed all the homeless you want to feed all day long. Unless you're giving them the gospel, it's not really doing any good. But truth without caring usually will be met with resistance, not acceptance. The famous politician who said, I feel your pain. You remember that? <laughs> they don't have a clue. We see that as gas raises close to $7 a gallon. They don't fill their tanks. They have drivers to drive them around. They're not worried about their security. Well, we saw last time that if we truly care for one another, and this is what we're, we're looking at here, we'll want to be together and we'll want to strengthen and encourage one another uh, spiritually. And we looked at three points. We said if we truly care for one another, we'll want to be together. And if we truly care for one another, we'll strengthen and encourage one another spiritually when we're together And we also said if we truly care for one another, we'll show a spiritual concern, not just a physical concern for people. Well, now Paul begins to show us here in these closing verses of chapter 3 two other aspects of truly caring for one another. If we truly care for one another, we'll rejoice when we hear of the other's stability in the faith and we'll pray for their continued spiritual growth. You, You see this these verses we read in verses 6 to 13 and verses 6 to 10, Paul here is really overjoyed. He's overwhelmed when he heard Timothy's report that the Thessalonians were doing well in their faith, that they were stable in their faith. And then in verses 11 to 13, he kind of expresses, you could call it a prayer wish, (laughs) a wish list, that he might be able to visit them and that they would continue to grow in their faith. Well, let's look at our our first point here together. If we truly care for one another, we will rejoice when we hear of others' stability in the faith. Remember what Paul is, at a great personal cost, he was left by himself in Athens and then in Corinth. And Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica and he wanted him to go and check on them because he couldn't stand the fact that they weren't there that long when they planted that church. He went there with Paul and Silas and, and uh, Timothy, and they all went and they started to preach and they got attacked by the, the Jewish religious elite and they were forced to leave early. But they were there for several Sabbaths, at least probably a month or so, if not longer, to establish a church. But this church had no leadership, really. I mean, they were brand new Christians out of a pagan background. But they came to Christ, and so Paul had to leave early. And when he left, he, he realized that, wow, I, how are they doing? I wonder how they're doing. And Paul himself couldn't go there because I think he didn't want to go because, remember, Jason was the one that they went after when he... Uh, uh, when they attacked Paul, they, he was staying at Jason's house and they forced him to put up some p- sort of bond. We don't know what it was. 
But they took Jason into custody and they released him if Paul would not be there. And so he couldn't return, but he figured out a way to find out some information. He could send Timothy, his assistant. And so he did. Now, this trip was over 200 miles each way. So this isn't just a little, you know, we're going to walk down to El Camino kind of a thing. 200 miles is quite a distance. And if he walked, it would take at least 10 days, one way, plus the time that he spent with the new believers there. So you're talking probably at least three weeks, maybe, or perhaps a month by the time Paul sent him away till the time that he actually heard back from Timothy. And when Timothy finally returned, he gave this glowing report of their faith and the good news about their spiritual condition. And Paul was just overjoyed. He was ecstatic. And we learned four things about genuine concern for others' stability in the faith. First of all, faith in Christ and love for God and for one another are the goals for spiritual stability. That's what we should long for. Look at what it says in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, so he returned from his trip, and he's brought us good news of your, look at what he says, faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Timothy's good news is the Greek word that is almost everywhere else is used of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. But his news about the the Thessalonians was really like hearing the gospel to Paul. He was was excited. It caused his heart heart to, to leap for joy. And when Timothy reported that the Thessalonians always thought kindly of Paul, what's he talking about here? I mean, think about it. When Paul showed up and they became believers and then Paul left, what happened? The, the, the accusations and all the attacks and everything that was going against Paul and Timothy and Silas, guess who they went to? They went to the new church. All of a sudden, the new church started coming under attack, and they were brand new believers. And so it could have been very easy for them, if they weren't believers, to say, wow, thanks a lot, Paul. Look at the situation you put us in. We were getting along just fine with everybody before you showed up. You know, a lot of times that's how the truth of the gospel is, right? Jesus himself said that he came to, to divide, right? I mean, even a family members against family members. And most of us have experienced that in our own families when we came to Christ. But here, Timothy really focuses, or Paul focuses in on, he brought Paul good news about the new converts, and he, he talks about their their faith and their love, and the fact that they still think kindly of Paul. And it refers that they were kind of still maintaining and they were still practicing what Paul taught them and modeled for them while he was there. They didn't push it off. They didn't compromise. They said, no, we're going to continue in Paul's pattern, the pattern that he left for us. And even though Paul and his companions had been, in one sense, the cause of their trials, they still longed to see him. They, did, they didn't have a grudge. They, they knew where their attacks were coming from. And so Paul and his companions wanted to see them as well. 
And at the heart of their kind thoughts and longing to see Paul was the fact that he had brought them the gospel. You know, when you share the gospel with somebody and they come to Christ, don't you have a special bond with that person? For the rest of eternity. You really do. When you go out by faith and you share the gospel with someone and that person actually puts their faith or trust in Christ, God used you as, a, as kind of a link in the chain there. You know, and, and that's where evangelism is so important. And sometimes we get our theology a little messed up and we think, well, God's sovereign. Whoever's going to be saved is saved. And, you know, we don't have to play a part in it. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. We do have to play a part in it. God calls us to play a part in it. Read the last couple of verses of Matthew, right? Go into all the world. <laughs> okay, why does he tell us to do that? Because he needs people to do it. Could God just snap his fingers and say, hey, I'm sovereign and people are going to come to Christ without you? Yes, but he didn't do that. He chose to use us in the process of bringing people to Christ. Now, it's all God's work. We don't save people, but we're responsible to what? Bring the message of the gospel to them. The message of the gospel, the fact that they're sinners, they need to be saved by God's grace through Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul and Timothy were excited when they got this news. You wonder if it took Timothy a little shorter time to get back to Paul. <laughs> you know, I mean, going there, he's probably thinking, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to find. Am I going to get attacked? But when he got there and he got the good news and he put it together and took it back to, to Paul, I bet you there was a spring in his step, knowing, hey, these guys are hanging in there. They're, 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 they're lasting through this persecution. They're enduring it. Paul's going to be so excited when I get back and tell him. I can't wait. Well, he mentions there, he brings the good news about their faith. Look at what it says in verse 6, and love. Faith and love. He, he focuses on those two. John Calvin calls those two qualities the entire sum of true piety. In other words, if you're going to wrap up the Christian life, it's faith and love. He adds this, hence all, all that aim at this twofold mark during their whole life are beyond all risk of erring. All others, however, much they may uh, torture themselves, wander miserably. And so faith and love, it really summarizes the gospel. It summarizes the Christian life. Faith is obviously faith in God. You have to have that first. You can't have faith in love if you don't have faith in God through Christ. But love, it may primarily be not necessarily even love for God, but a love for one another in this context. Because he's talking about the Thessalonians. It, believes, it includes a love for the Lord, but it also may, in this context, primarily refer to our love one for another within the church. Remember when Jesus reinstated Peter after his failures. Remember that? In John 21, he says, Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. It's like, wow, Lord, I mean, do you have a hearing problem? You know, it's probably what Peter was thinking. But he knew it was so important. Or in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says this, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is what? Accursed, anathema. That's pretty serious. 
You think of the church in, in Revelation, Ephesus, Revelation 2. It was commended in so many different ways, but it was rebuked because it what? It left its what? Its first love. It left its first love. First love is really what's, what starts when you first come to know the Lord. You first come to know the Lord, you're excited. Your sins are forgiven. Man, you're a new person in Christ. You're reading the Bible. You're excited to be in church. You're excited to serve. You're excited to share the gospel. But that can be lost. You can lose your first love. You, know, you look around in a lot of a lot of churches today, and it's almost like they're the frozen chosen. You know, it's just like, well, that's it. You know, there's no compassion. There's no excitement. It's like, well, yeah, I've been a believer for 50 years. I mean, you should be the most excited. Because you're closer to the Lord in glory than, than anybody else. The older we grow in the Lord, the more excited we should grow. But love for the Lord is inseparable from love for the people for whom the Lord laid down his life. You can't say, well, you know, I love the Lord. I hate the church. But I love the Lord. I hate those people in the church. But I love, I love the Lord. You can't say that. You can say it, but you're a hypocrite. So love includes both. And Paul had observed this faith and love in the Thessalonians. And he mentioned there in verse uh, three of, of chapter one, their work of faith. And he adds in, in verse eight of chapter one, he says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth. So this was, this was something that was just being trumpeted from this small little church in Thess- Thessalonica. He also refers to their faith in chapter 3, verse 2, 5, 6, 7, 10. We're not going to read all these. We don't have time. He goes on in the second letter and verse 1 or verse 4 of chapter 1, verse 11 of chapter 1, verse 13 of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians. He refers to their faith. He also mentions in verse 3 their labor of love, which refers to the love for others stemming from their love for God. Um, he does this over and over again. In 2 Thessalonians, it's interesting, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 3, he mentions the love of God, which probably refers to God's love for us. God's love for us. But Paul often links throughout his letters faith and love. And I just want you to Turn over a couple pages to 1 Timothy, and I want to walk you through a couple verses here that Paul ties these two together. And these two qualities are very important to this apostle, faith and love. And so I want to see where he puts the focus here. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge is what? Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, there it is, a sincere faith. Faith and love tied together. Look down at verse 14 of the same chapter, 1 Timothy 1, 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 2.15. He says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue, what? In faith and love and holiness with self-control. But there you see faith and love tied together once again. Or 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you of your youth. He's telling Timothy. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Once again, they're tied together. Or chapter 6, verse 11. Paul brings it up again. 1 Timothy 6, 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Turn over to the book of 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 13. One thirteen, Second 2 Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.22. Once again, same thing. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And the last one here I'll share with you is chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, he says, my patience, my love, there it is, faith and love, my steadfastness. So with other essential qualities such as holiness, we can say that that faith and love are are two of the primary marks of a Christian. There's something that stands out. We must believe in God and the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. We must continue trusting God, even in the midst of difficult trials and tribulations, as the Thessalonians were doing. You can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And you have to love God with all your heart and love one another. Which are the two greatest commandments, by the way, Matthew 22 tells us. When God's people are walking in faith and love, they are spiritually, you could say, they're spiritually stable. They're spiritually stable. Well, the second thing that I'd like to share with you here is that not only is is faith in Christ um, and love for God and for one another are goals for spiritual stability, but joy over someone's stability in the faith can bring encouragement when we're going through affliction. Look at what it says in verse 7. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you Through your faith. I mean, did Paul go through trials and distress and afflictions? If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know he went through a lot, quite a bit. Continuous trials, tribulations, afflictions. Paul had been going through hard times in every city he preached. I mean, if you doubt, listen, he was unjustly beaten, he was put in stocks and thrown into prison in Philippi. He was forced to leave Thessalonica because of persecution. The Jews in Thessalonica, they followed him when he went on to Berea. 
and they stirred up the crowds there against him, forcing him to leave. He saw some fruit in Athens when he moved on there, but mostly he got jeers and rejection because of their philosophy there. He went on to Corinth, and we went through the book of of Corinthians, and the Jews there resisted his message, and they blasphemed him, even though God was doing a work there at the time. They rose up against Paul, and they brought him before Galileo, the proconsul who basically drove them away from his judgment seat. And then he went on to passively watch as the Jews beat Sophonies, a Jewish convert, someone who came to Christ who was Jewish. And they basically beat him in front of the proconsul's judgment seat. I mean, Paul was definitely fearful that he would be harmed. How could you not be? One night, the Lord graciously appeared to him. If you look over at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, Verses 9 to 11. And the reason I say, well, you might say, well, wait a minute, he was the Apostle Paul. I don't, I don't think you should say he was afraid. Oh, he was afraid. <laughs> and the reason I say that is look at what the Lord says to him in a vision. One night the Lord graciously appeared to him in a vision because he knew what was going on in the Apostle Paul's heart. And in verse 9 of Acts 18, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. So he must have been fearful, or the Lord wouldn't have said that. But he said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And then he says, here's why, Paul, you need to continue to speak, for I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Was his heart fearful? Definitely. But God knew that and God gave him the appropriate encouragement and he continued to do that. But Paul also kind of dealt with something in his heart over his ministry years. It was a concern he had and he brings it up time and time again. If you're familiar with the writings of Paul, he brings it up in Philippians chapter 2 verse 16, 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Chapter 15, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. Also verse 58 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He brings it up in Galatians 2, 2. Galatians 4, 1. And here, he's concerned that somehow his labor might have been in vain. In other words, he looked at his work of ministry and he said, is this worth it? I don't feel like I'm having an impact here. It's hard to understand the Apostle Paul saying something like that. But at the end of his life, he summed up his accomplishments. I don't know if you are following the Southern Baptist Convention, their meeting they had. But I see a vast difference in the way Paul summed up his ministry at the end of his life versus a certain unnamed Southern California pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, largest church in in the convention, who believes very much that his life is a purpose-driven life. Hint, hint. 
Well, he broke away from the biblical view of the Southern Baptist Convention that always refused to ordain women as elders and pastors. And his church actually ordained pastors and elders who were women. And so at the convention, this was something that was being spoken about the last several weeks. And under the threat of being dismissed from the convention itself as one of the largest churches in the convention... He stood in front of the entire convention with a microphone, and he seemed to recount, um, you might say brag, (laughs) is probably a better word, about his accomplishments in ministry. He'd definitely been in ministry many years, I think 50 plus years, but he started rattling off numbers, how many people were baptized, how many people were saved, how many people were pastors because of his ministry in his church. And I thought, as I listened to him speak, and you can hear it for yourself on YouTube or any of the internet, but when I heard him speak, I thought, wow, this is almost, he's building himself up here. And Paul took a totally different angle when he came to the end of his ministry. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, what does Paul say? He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept, what? The faith. That's it. That's it. He didn't say, oh, you should have seen me in Thessalonica when they were, I was grappling with those guys and then, and then in Philippi. And, no, he didn't recount all of his ministry crescendo. He pointed who? To Christ. He pointed to Christ. He pointed to the, the fight that he was in, the race that he won, the faith that he has kept. See, if God uses you to help someone else stay firm in their faith, to stand firm in their faith, you can be encouraged and you can go through any trial. It makes it worth it. It makes it worth it. I remember when we went to India and, you know, it's hot, it's humid over there. And I just recall thinking, what are we doing here, you know? But then, as soon as you got in front of those 15, 20 pastors and started teaching them, and they were so touched. They, some of them had walked miles. And I'm, I was humbled, completely humbled, like in the rain to get there. And I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. And how gracious they were and how thankful they were. You know what? I, I could have put up with 130-degree humidity. I mean, it wouldn't have mattered at that point. Why? Because you know you're having an eternal impact through God's ministry. And that's how Paul felt. Well, the third thing here is we need joy over someone's stability in their faith. It reflects, when we have that, it reflects our true values. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9 of of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For now we live, if you are standing fast or standing firm, you could say, in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Ask yourself this question. Which of the following would cause you to erupt in spontaneous joy and thankfulness? We're going to give you a raise increase. Everybody wants a raise increase, right? At your job. 
Or you know what? Somebody comes along and says, here are the keys to the new car. Here, just take it. It's yours. Or the day we're all waiting for. Congratulations. You've just won the clearing. Publisher's clearing house sweepstakes. And you'll be receiving $7,000 a week for life. Wow. I guess you have to play to win, but... Or you meet a friend who you haven't seen in a while. You sit down and you talk and you hear that in spite of all the trials that he's been through or she's been through, they're standing firm in the Lord. They're standing fast in the Lord. See, that's what made Paul's heart leap for joy. That's what makes us really happy. That's what really reveals our true values. I mean, Paul didn't even take credit for their stability in the faith. What did he do? He thanked God. He said, God, this is your work in their lives. He thanked God for them because their perseverance through persecution showed that God was truly at work with them. That's so exciting when you see someone come to Christ and then immediately it's like they they go into this valley of trial and tribulation. I mean, we have brothers and sisters in our own church, even though it's small, who have done just that. They came to Christ, and that's when it's like hell just unleashed in their life. And trial after trial after trial. And yet they're staying faithful. They're staying faithful to God. Because God is doing a work in them, even through their trials. Many times, Paul and other leaders pointed to Christians who were Stable, they were growing in their faith as a, a source of his joy. And it should be for ours as well. Even the Apostle John wrote in 3 John verses 3 and 4, he wrote this, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy, John says, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The truth. I pray that we have that same joy. When he says they're standing fast, back to Second Thess- or First Thessalonians three, it's a military term. It means to stand firm, to stand your position. It's used of not retreating in the face of an attack. To stand firm in the Lord, what that implies to stand fast in the Lord is that they were truly in the Lord. So you can't stand firm in the Lord if you're not in the Lord. Right? You just can't. It's impossible. You have to come to terms with your own sin. You have to come to terms with the fact that Christ is the Savior. You're not. And you turn to the cross and you confess your sin and you ask God to save you and forgive you of your sin. He will do that. Then you can stand firm in the Lord. Then he will be your refuge. And so he's pointing out here, when the enemy attacked, they fled. But where did they flee to? They fled to the Lord. They went to the Lord. They trusted in him. In Christian counseling, there's a lot of counselors that advise people who are going through troubled times in their life that to, put, to, to simply put their trust in the Lord is worthless medicine, they say. 
That's not going to help you. You know, you need this pill, you need this, you need that. But over and over and over again, the Bible gives us examples of God's people who trusted God when they were under attack. Think of David when he was hiding in the cave from Saul. And there was overwhelming troops seeking his life. And in Psalm 57, verse 7, it says this, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. He was probably singing quietly. Because Saul and the, 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 the troops were, were out there looking for him. But he said, I will sing and make melody. I will sing praises. See, that's the resolve of understanding your position in Christ, of standing firm in the Lord. And if you really care for people, when you hear that they're standing firm in the Lord through trials, that will cause your heart to rejoice and you will give thanks to God. So faith in Christ and love for God, and love for one another are goals of spiritual stability. Joy over someone's stability in the faith can bring encouragement even when we're going through much affliction. And it shows us our true values. Well, the fourth thing here, stability of faith comes through teaching God's word. Teaching God's word. Look at what he says in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly... Night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. The way that Paul would have completed what is lacking in their faith, but was by what? By teaching them the word of God. That was the whole purpose. The word there, lacking in your faith, or some translations read, complete. It refers to equipping. It refers to supplying something that you you need, that you're lacking. It has the idea of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, where it says, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. He also uses it, by the way, in the New Testament, back in, Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, he gives a kind of a list of what God has given to the church. He's given apostles, and he's given prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Why? Why did he give these gifts to the church? Well, he points out there, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. See, the the reason that we believe in in the church and we gather as the church and we gather on Sunday mornings is not necessarily to evangelize the lost. It's to equip those who are saved. Now, we pray that people get saved. We pray that people will hear the gospel and be curious and and come and, and ask questions and come to know Christ. And then they can come the next Sunday and they can be edified in their faith. But see, just coming to church doesn't earn you brownie points with God. I I often struggle when I hear people saying, you know, I have a friend who's not a Christian, and I have a family member who's not a Christian, and um, I just want to let you know I'm going to invite him to church. And I'm like, well, that's great, but why don't you try sharing the gospel with them? (laughs) Then bring them to church. (laughs) It'll make a whole lot more sense for them then. 
I mean, think about it. You're walking into a, a place where people are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they can truly worship and honor him through their singing and all that stuff. And then a non-believer comes in and they probably look around. Well, what are these people doing? This is kind of awkward. And it should be awkward. And that's unfortunately where the, 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 the whole new growth movement in the churches want to dumb everything down so that unbelievers feel most welcome on a Sunday morning. Now, we want them to feel welcome. We don't want to turn people away. But we're not here to cater to unbelievers. That's just not what we do. That's not what the Bible instructs the church to do. It instructs the church to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Those who are saved. Those who are saved. Is there a place for evangelism? Definitely. Do we want to share the gospel on a Sunday morning? Definitely. Do we want to encourage people to put their faith, their trust in Christ? Yes. But that's not the sole purpose. And so we've already seen the amazing depth of teaching that Paul supplied to these new converts who came out of a a purely pagan background. I mean, they were worshiping idols, and then they heard the message, the gospel from Paul, and they got saved. And Paul spent a couple, maybe a couple weeks, a couple months there, we don't know exactly, but not a whole lot of time trying to help them grow. And so he assumes that they understand the Trinity, the doctrine of election, and how to endure trials and and persecutions and much more. See, the, the Thessalonians' lack was not because of sin. It wasn't because of sin. But rather, the lack, what they lacked was, was their maturity in Christ. They hadn't come to full maturity in Christ. How does that happen? It comes through further understanding the truth as it's revealed in God's word. If you want to grow as a Christian, then you have to expose yourself to the teaching of God's word. That's what will cause you to grow. That's what will give you understanding into deeper things in the word of God. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul supplies in writing some of that which he would give them in a personal teaching if he was able to come to them. We'll get into that when we get there. But when he talks about their faith, he says your faith, it refers to both doctrine and its application. Doctrine Doctrinal faith has to be applied. You can't just come here and hear a message and memorize these four points and go, okay, now am I going to grow? No. You have to apply it to your life. How does it affect you when you walk out the door? It has to be applied in our daily lives. And so verse 10 mentions Paul's constant, fervent prayers. He says, day and night. In verses 11 through 13, it gives us more of the content of those prayers. But let's look at the second point here this morning. First one was, if we truly care for one another, we will rejoice when we hear of others' stability in Christ. Secondly, if we truly care for one another, we will pray for others' continued spiritual growth. Three things here quickly. Our prayers should be heartfelt and frequent. We should be praying for those that God has entrusted to us. We shouldn't just, you know, oh, you know, out of sight, out of mind. We've already considered 
part of verse 10, but look at what he says. He says there, day and night. Know that we pray for you day and night. What does he mean? Does he mean constantly, like 24-7, that's all Paul's doing? He's praying? No. I mean, sometimes we think of, you know, Paul, well, he did say pray without ceasing. Think about it. Practically, can you pray without ceasing? Without ever stopping? No. What is he talking about? I, I like to think of prayer not something you do. It's, it's a way of life. It's an attitude. An attitude of dependence upon God. That's what prayer really is. So no matter what comes down the road, no matter what trouble and trial, whatever, you're immediately kicked into a prayer state. You're just going, hey, Lord, I, I know that this is not a fun thing to be in right now. I just got in an accident. But God, help me sort this out. You turn to God. You don't turn to your own ingenuity, your own wisdom. You turn to God. And here he's saying that we should be praying for others continually, night and day, frequently, repeatedly, you could say. When he says most earnestly there, it really reflects reflects not just the frequency of it, but it reflects his heart. He felt deeply the desire to be with these, these believers and help them grow in the faith. See, we shouldn't turn our frequency or our earnestness in prayer into a basis for why God should grant them this or that. He always, we always come to God based on the merit of who? Christ and his grace. We don't have any worthiness in ourselves to go before God and demand anything. But at the same time, we shouldn't just knock and run. Remember when you were little and you used to run around the neighborhood and knock on people's doors and run away and then hide in the bushes and watch when they come out? I thought that was funny, right? I mean, sometimes we treat our our prayer life like that. See, if we we feel deeply about others' needs and what what others are going through, guess what? We're going to keep knocking until the Lord answers. We're not just in a knock and run. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, when he's talking about that, about knocking and praying, and it's really in the, in the present imperative, meaning keep knocking. Don't stop. Don't stop asking. Some of you have loved ones who still have not come to Christ, and you've been trying and praying and, you know, gone through valley and valley with your loved ones, and you just, I don't know if they're ever going to come to Christ. Keep praying for them. Keep modeling Christ. Keep sharing the gospel. You don't know when, when God is going to turn that, their minds onto the gospel to lift the blinders off their eyes. Paul had to keep praying for about five years before God granted him the opportunity to come back to Thessalonica. He was praying, God, I, I need to get back there. I need to get back. That went on for five years. So we have to stay at it. Secondly, our prayers are directed to God and the Father and to Jesus our Lord. Look at what he says in verse 11. Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. We're not going to get into it all. But three things in the the short request show Jesus' deity here. His close association with the Father, first of all. They are both 
the subject of a singular verb in the original Greek. That would be impossible in the English language. You would get an F in the English if you tried to do that. But here, that's exactly what the original language does. They're both the subject of a singular verb. Also, his ability to hear and to answer prayer. And his designation as what? Lord. And so he says, hey, we have God the Father himself, but also the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was maybe meant to dissuade any people who were questioning his deity. And since Paul mentions this in passing without explanation, it shows that he had taught the deity of Christ to these people. He didn't have to go into detail. He just kind of throws it out there. There's a lot of theology in his statement. But Paul had already gone through that with him. They kind of already understood what the Trinity was. At least as the Bible describes it. You don't ever really fully understand it. You can't comprehend it. But it was not some late invention here of the early church fathers, as some liberals contend. Paul, Paul attributed the highest possible place to Jesus. He wanted them to know that he was and is God. And when we pray, we come to a loving Heavenly Father who cares for his children, but we also come to Jesus, our Lord, who gave himself on the cross for us, and lives to make intervention for us, Hebrews 7 tells us. He intercedes for us. What a wonderful thing. Thirdly, our prayers are focused on spiritual growth of others. Our prayers are focused on the spiritual growth of others. Um, You know, our prayers should be heartfelt and frequent. Our prayers should be directed to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but they should also be focused on the spiritual growth of others. Look at what he says in verses 12 to 13, closing here. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for us as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What does he mean here by spiritual growth? He means increasing love, one for another. We should be growing in love for our family members. We should be growing in love for those in the family of God. But our love should increase. It should abound for all people too. It it means increasing in solid, holy hope, one commentator says. And he says there that they would be established. It's the word strengthened. It has the idea you have a firm, a firm footing and you know where you're standing in your faith. But he also says without blame and holiness. This isn't speaking of sinlessness. You don't reach a point in your Christian life where you don't sin anymore. Unfortunately, that's the truth. You'll continue to sin until you receive your glorified body. That's why we are to keep short accounts with the Lord. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we sin... What do we do? We confess our sins to him who is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we need to be reminded of that. We aren't harboring secret sins while we put on a good front in front of others. If there's sin in our life, just take it to the Lord. 
You're not hiding it from him anyway. Just confess it and get it over with. Then you can have a clear conscience before him and walk as such. But notice also there he calls them saints. Literally, that's holy ones. Holy ones, ones who are set apart. It's used in Zechariah 14.5 to refer to the angels uh, that appeared. But Paul uses it most exclusively to refer to believers, that we are, are saints in Christ Jesus. Uh, when Christ returns, he will be accompanied by his holy angels, but he will also be accompanied by what? Believers who have gone on before and died. We who are living will be caught up to meet him in the, in the air, the Lord's, meet the Lord in the air, in this glorious company in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. And so they're, they're going to be coming back. We're going to be going up. And Paul's prayer was that he might complete what is lacking in their faith. His prayer ties back all the way to the the work of faith that he started, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope that we talked about in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. We never reach a point, unfortunately, in our Christian faith here on this earth where we have arrived, that we have finally met the plateau of faith and hope and love. No, we have to continue to pray that God would work out in our lives, that we will be increasing, that our faith will be abounding, our love and our our hope will be growing for ourselves, for our, our families, for our church, and for the Lord. And if you truly care for one another, we want to spend time together to strengthen and encourage each other spiritually, not just physically, but spiritually. And so, as Paul relates this to the Thessalonians in this letter, he wants them to know that he is overjoyed with the report of what God is doing in their hearts. And you know, when you stop and you you ask yourself personally, what are the things that you spend time praying about in your own personal walk? Have you led someone to Christ? Are you trying to lead someone to Christ? Are you, are you spending time in prayer for that person? Or are you just going off kind of in your own wisdom and, you know, you've got your little tracks and you're going to go save this person? You know, people always ask, well, how can I better share the gospel with my relatives? You know, I've done it time and time again. What should I do? My answer is always the same. Pray for them. Pray for them. You know, I mean, I, I think the wrong approach is every time you invite them over, you've got the tracks laid out and you've got the Bible and you're, you're hammering them, you know. I mean, they're not going to want to come back. You know, don't you think God is perfectly capable, if he's going to save them, to open up their heart, to create a curiosity in their heart and their mind? So when they do come over for dinner, and maybe you had a conversation about the gospel years ago, don't you think God can bring that up in their mind? And they, and they can simply ask you a simple question. Hey, are you guys, do you guys still go to church? Yeah, we do. Don't over-answer when they ask you a question. You know, oh, that's a spiritual door. I'm just going to hammer them now. You know, God's, no, just, just relax and let God do his work. You know, my philosophy in sharing the gospel is always keep people hungry for it. So there's been times when I've been in conversations with people and, and kind of the, somebody asks a question, a spiritual question, I always got to fight because as a pastor, I want to give them all the information I have, right? And, and that's the wrong approach. 
Because they're just asking this one little question. I don't need to go on and on for a half hour. You know, I mean, if I answer that question, I'm praying, God, let another question come in in your mind. So that hopefully this, this leads down the path of me being able to share the gospel with them. And you establish that. You know, and, and you see God work in incredible ways sometimes. That, you know, a relative that is totally ticked off and never wants to have anything to do with you, they call you one day. Why? Because you've been praying for them. They call you and they say, wow, you know what? I've kind of had a change of heart here. Do you think you could, we could go over this again? Wow, really? And even then I say, are you sure? <laughs> you really, you know, because you know what I believe. Do you really want me to share it? You know, and, and make them ask for it. And then you know God is working in their heart and in their life. And then we can have that joy of the Lord knowing that when they're saved, that God used us in that way. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his commitment to you. And Lord, we thank you that even though through the trials and the tribulations that he went through and being faithful to the gospel, to being willing to teach, even though he was being persecuted and imprisoned and beaten, Lord, we we pray that you would give us that same resolve. Father, we're not going to go out in this world and show the gospel and, and be stoned to death or anything like that. But, but Lord, sometimes just the fear of embarrassment, the fear of, of people thinking certain things about us causes us to be silent. And, Lord, I pray that we would become a church who's bold for the gospel in a gracious and loving way. And be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And sharing the gospel, look for those doors that God is opening in the hearts and lives of our loved ones. And when he opens the door, help us not to just go in the door and, and cause a bunch of chaos, but, but to be patient and to be led by your spirit to share what you want us to share. And Lord, as they hear the gospel, I pray that their hearts would be responsive. And Father, we live in an area of the country that is very dark. It's very stained with sin. And Lord, we pray that you would use us as individuals and as a church to bring light into people's lives through Christ and through Christ alone. And Father, we pray that if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray today might be the day for them that they could cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I'm, I'm asking you to save me. That's a prayer that God will answer. And he will remove your sin. He will wash you as, as, as clean as you can be. Pure as, as snow, the Bible says. And take away your sin. And it will be transferred to Christ. And I pray that that would be the prayer that's on your heart. And if you pray that prayer, I pray that you would let someone know. So that we could encourage you and show you and help you to mature in your faith. And us believers, I just pray that we'd leave this place encouraged to share the word uh, in our schools and in our workplaces with our friends and our family. Lord, help us never to grow shy about Christ. Help us not to be jerks for Jesus. We don't want to be that. We don't want to give Christ a bad name. But we want to be helpful to people and guide people to spiritual truth. We ask that you bless our time across the way as well and bless the food to our bodies and our fellowship. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last song.